Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Pew, pew, pew! And you're wondering, who is talking and who is making those delightful radar gun noises? Yeehaw! Is that what that was? Yeah. Pew, pew! Bam, bam! Well, that is our cowboy in resident, Lizzie No, and I am Cindy Howes. Hello, all. Well, howdy, little lady. You're in a real country mood today, huh? Show enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm back. It's me, Lizzie, again. The cowboy's gone. How's it going, Cindy? It's going great. Uh, I am looking forward to hearing your conversation with Kimaya Diggs, who is on the podcast today. She seems like she's like really technologically savvy. She sent me like her audio file. This is like a little behind the scenes action. She Love sent it. me her audio file. And I was like, what is this? It was like the the sound, like the audio file, and then also like a transcript. Like I've heard about this like AI that oh my like gosh. Um, Google has this program that like automatically transcribes your podcast file. That's fantastic. Right. It was super high tech, uh, but like I couldn't figure out how to download it. So I felt like a hundred year old, like trying to figure it out. But... Well, the thing about Kimaya, yes, she is very young and tech savvy. I don't actually know if she's very young. She comes across as very youthful, but... What is she, like, five years old? Yeah, five, Four six. Four years old? What's that, <laughs> fifth grade? Um, part of our, <laughs> the conversation that we had was about how she sometimes has this, like, fear factor with 
the technology of recording, but it's deceptive. Some of us feel like we, like it's called imposter syndrome, right? You feel like you don't mm, know what you're doing, right. like even when you very much do. And I think that maybe that's Kimaya. I don't want to speak for her, but. When was the last time you felt imposter syndrome? Oh my gosh. I have just had a, like a pretty rapid uh, transformation with imposter syndrome when it comes to producing music. Like I have had a couple of projects that have required me to create demos and write instrumental music on my own and like share it with people before I get a chance to really polish it up and play it live. And so I've had to pretty quickly like learn how to make an okay demo at home. And it's actually been so empowering and it made me realize how I've held myself back in the past by thinking that I wouldn't be able to do it well or just not mm. trusting my own ideas. And a lot of that, guys, is sexist conditioning. Ooh. I'm breaking free. You got to free your mind first. I hear that if you free your mind, the rest will follow. That's what I've heard as well. Is that SWV or En Vogue? I thought it was En Vogue, but I'm going to Google it right now. SW, it's probably En Vogue. It is En Vogue. En Vogue is like a much underappreciated R&B group. Absolutely. Uh, You know what? I'm going to listen to En Vogue as soon as we get off this call. Can you speed it up? (laughs) Can you speed it up, Cindy? Come on. One thing that I want to talk about is I am a real estate mogul and I am running an Airbnb. Oh my God, Cindy. Yeah. And I the guillotine is going to come for you. Right. I've been trying to find um, (laughs) cleaners Mm -hmm. and this might be like boring to listen to, but I've like asked people for quotes. And so this one company that I was talking to, they gave me a quote. They like sent it on a PDF and the name that, so my name is Cindy Howes, Mm -hmm. right? And I was on the phone. I was like, my name is Cindy Howes and here's how you spell it. And he sent me the quote, and my name was Cindy Cows. Cows? Cows? Like the animal Moo Moo? Milk Milk? Happy California Cows? Yeah, which is, when I was a chubby child, that is what they would call me. Oh, Cindy, that's awful. Oh, Cindy, that's awful. People called you that? Isn't that hilarious? It's not funny at all. I want to beat everyone up. No, it's not. That's not funny, but the hilarious part is that this guy who doesn't know me from anyone was like, I'm going to put your childhood nickname that the kids would bully you with. You, sir, are off my list. I'm so sorry, Cindy. You cannot work with that person. <laughs> really, this kind of situation, <laughs> there's a lot of emotions involved. I, First, I'll I was bet. like, Whoa! and then I just like laughed, you know, because it's like you just spelled you just hit the like, how far away is the H from the C? Oh, it's pretty far, far. actually. Yes, on the keyboard. far. <laughs> it was not a mistype. It was a mishear. Well, at least it wasn't a scam. Well, you can very easily be scammed. It's going around these days. Everyone, you know, stay woke. They're after your lucky charms. Those red flags are uh, important. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dating someone and you and you get red flags, or maybe if you're like doing a job interview. Mm-hmm. Like I had a friend who was totally almost scammed. So the scam that's going on, if you are applying for a job in the interview process, they're like, you're going to have to buy like a computer through our portal and then we'll reimburse you. Before you even start the job? After you accept the job, you have to like, quote unquote, buy your own equipment and the company will reimburse you. Okay, no. 
And the scam is that they you buy it through their portal, so you're buying like a $1,500 computer, and then they never reimburse you. So and you don't and you also you're not getting a computer. Oh, you don't get the computer either. Okay, wow. You don't get the computer. Wow. So I had I had that happen to a friend where like they got so far into the interview process, but there were like all these red flags of like broken English and they're not going to let you talk to the supervisor. Oh, that's the one. The supervisor thing. It was like they did the first interview one day. They did the second interview the next day, and then the day after that, they give you the, the, the job. job offer, which is like okay, that's, not a real. That's thing. shady. I had a job interview like that years ago. I don't. I think I was interviewing to be like a security guard at an oh, office yeah. building. When I look at you, I think security. Yeah, guard. bouncer. Um, guys, it takes <laughs> a lot of different hustles to fund an early music career. So that wasn't the scam. The scam was that when I got there. There were like so many people waiting to interview, tons of people. I have my interview. They asked me like six and a half questions and then they were like, okay, we want to give you the job. And I was like, okay, cool. In the room. And then then the interviewer starts running me down. Again, it's going to be a list of things that I will need to do. Like you need to bring your ID to this location. You need to pay for your uniform or whatever. As he's explaining this, he's rapidly writing down the numbers on a piece of paper and then circling each one and being like, okay, got it? Circle. Okay, so it'll be 200 for the uniform? Circling it. And then and then it'll be drop your ID here? Cir- he just was like rapidly circling things Almost with a like pen, like trying to hypnotize me. Could have been on drugs. Could have been an attempt at hypnosis. They really Ooh. wanted me to accept the job before leaving the premises. They were like, we really, we mm, we can't be sure that we can hold your place if you don't accept the job right now. And I was like, I don't, I do need money, but I don't need money that bad. Like, yeah, no, no, thank you. But joke was on me because I really did. I really did need money that bad. But of course, that wouldn't have been a money making situation. That would have been a money spending situation. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ways you can spend your money, you know? Yeah. I mean, for sure. There's there's lots. Where is this going, Cindy? (laughs) I mean, you could contribute to basic health. Oh my you know, gosh, amazing segue. I should have had more faith in you. I was like, where, what's, what are Cindy's intentions with this? Damn, that's why you're the boss and I'm the Anne Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we have gone over a lot. Um, before we get into Kimaya, I do want to mention that we are a listener-supported podcast. So if you do want to make your contribution, you've been listening for a while. We've had like tons of people listening, which is so awesome. Um, and if you can't contribute, that's totally fine. But if you are able to, basicfolk.com slash donate. You can do like a $5 a month contribution and keep things rolling here. We're also on social media at basicfolkpod. Uh, and you can also sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com. Get in touch. Lizzie. Okay. So multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, librettist, teacher, speechwriter, and noted dog lady, Kimaya Diggs, um, grew up surrounded by music. In her family, music was always a tool for connection, and both of her parents were wonderful dancers. Her 2018 debut album, Breastfed, puts together the story of her upbringing and her background through dreamy folk soul jams that are reminiscent of my personal fave, Corinne Bailey Ray. Even though Kimaya had been a musician all her life, she experienced a steep learning curve when it came to recording in the studio. 
And that's some of that imposter syndrome that we were talking about in our intro. Um, the best. The best. The worst. The worst. Mm. <laughs> um, she quickly figured out how the complex processes of mixing and mastering can impact how an audience receives your music and how frustrating it can be to play guitar to a click track. All my studio musicians out there are nodding their heads right now. Um, <laughs> these lessons learned left Kimaya excited to get to work on her second album. In the meantime, she had had vocal surgery. She had adopted a traumatized racing greyhound and tragically lost her mom to breast cancer. There was so much mm. love and loss to process. And Kimaya was figuring out how to share these precious pieces of her life while still honoring her mom's privacy and her own healing journey. You might think that as a result, th this album would comprise 45 minutes of whispered, somber meditations on the great beyond, but Quincy, Kimaya's new album, is an album bursting with joy and exuberant grooves. Kimaya's husband, Jacob, um, plays in her band and contributed music for this new album. One of the most interesting parts of our conversation was when Kimaya shared how uh, she and Jacob managed to keep both their marriage and their creative partnership healthy at the same time. Here's a hint. It has to do with co-writing. Ooh, interesting. Mm -hmm. This sounds great. Uh, we're going to take a listen to one of her songs. It is called Rainbow. Uh, and then we'll get to our conversation with Lizzie No and Kimaya Diggs on Basic Folk. Maya Diggs, welcome to Basic Folk. I am so excited to have you on this episode. You were one of the first people I put on my wish list this year of like, who do I need to interview? And I was actually so excited that I started the interview two hours early and I was sitting here alone in the Zoom call like, when's she going to come? And then, <laughs> and then I realized... The problem was me. That is but so Just funny. to give you a sense of how pumped I am about this new album and to talk about your musical journey. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to dig in right away. I know that you grew up in a very musical family, mm -hmm. um, both your parents and your siblings. So can you tell us a little bit about your musical background and how did growing up in a musical family teach you about like what the role that music could play in your life? 
Oh, that's a great question. So I like have been singing as long as I can possibly remember. As mm-hmm. far as my parents, they both came to music through dancing. My mom was like a ballet dancer and modern dancer and did a lot of folk dance. Um, and my dad was just like an incredible party dancer. <laughs> so yes. for me growing up, music always was super, super functional. Um, whether we did a lot of community theater together as a family. So there is a lot of that, but also a lot of putting on music for dancing, putting on music for car rides. Um, And I just always, as a little kid singing all the time, was like, I need to be like performing and creating interactive and immersive experiences. I used to like force my parents to watch one woman shows that I would write. (laughs) Stop that. Do you remember any of the content, any of the titles? So I actually recently went to my parents' house and got a couple boxes of old stuff. And one of them was about a woman who gets lost in the forest and it's the winter time. She encounters someone who has a nice cloak and a fire and is like, can I please sit by your fire? And the person says no. And the main character dies. Uh, (laughs) And all the characters were played by me. So (laughs) (laughs) wait, so she dies. And then is there sort of like, is there any sort of like remembrance, reconciliation, reckoning, like are others affected by the loss? Uh, No, no. She just fades into obscurity, freezes to death in the woods. And that's that tragedy i know i know so from there (laughs) um (laughs) when i was in college i was studying opera and Mm -hmm. touring with this world music ensemble called northern harmony doing like south african and corsican and balkan music um and then i feel like compared to the friends that i have in music at home i feel like Mm -hmm. i was a late bloomer like i didn't start playing guitar or writing songs till i was like 23 Mm -hmm. um And so I still feel very much like a baby in the songwriting world, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. Okay. I don't, I don't agree, but I, because your songwriting is very sophisticated, but (laughs) I hear you on the late bloomer stuff. I'm curious about you, like high school Kimaya, who were you listening to? Were you a good student? Were you a band kid? Were you a theater kid? It sounds like maybe. Yeah. Paint us a picture. So I went to a performing arts high school. Oh, um, which is where I met my husband, except I don't remember him from that time because we were not friends. (laughs) Um, But I did a lot of theater and I did a lot of music. Um, I wore billions of layers of clothing. So I'm talking like cool tights, cropped flare jeans, corduroy skirt on top, stripy long sleeve shirt, fun short sleeve shirt, maybe tank top. Okay, so this is... This is the twee era. You yes. were twee as twee. Yes, absolutely. Maybe like a little cap and like 50 oh, bracelets. A cap. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. My stepchildren watch New Girl and so they are in love with Zoe Deschanel. And anytime she comes up in like a commercial or anything, they're like, ah, it's New Girl. Oh, I and love that. I wish that I could communicate how like she was so important to like my entire generation oh, for like a completely different sort of thing that she represented. It's like such a, it's such a product of like that particular time in history. That's so funny to me. The stripy shirt, stripy long sleeve shirt with a skirt. Oh, so classic. And were you listening to like Neutral Milk Hotel? Was this like, how deep were you in? I was not that cool. I, (laughs) so I just, I have such vivid memories of the beginning of like download illegal downloading and the early days of youtube so a lot of the music that i loved a lot i discovered by accident because it just 
was included in downloads of like classics that I was trying to get. Like I was trying to download Earth, Wind and Fire, ended up with some Gnarls Barkley and Corinne Bailey Ray. And oh, so like so that. you were down illegally downloading and then an extra file would be attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or something would be like misnamed. So some of my very favorite songs, I didn't know their real names for a long time because they were just called like EWF track 11 or something like that. Whoa. Yeah. So I was listening to a lot of Corinne Bailey Ray, India Ari, um, who else? Nora Jones. Um, and then of course, like all of my parents' music, Earth, Wind, and Fire, yes. Level 42, War, mm-hmm. like Whitney Houston. <laughs> That's quite a like, so like singing and songwriting education, just oh, right absolutely. there, even not even getting into like your performing arts education. And I want to talk about your opera training, yeah, because it's it's sort of like to me the like the analog medium that we have in modern times and i'm curious how your opera training did or didn't come into play when you started uh recording your own music oh yeah i would say it really did come into play largely because when i recorded my first album i was dealing with what i did not know at the time was a really bad vocal injury and I ended up doing about 150 sessions of speech therapy and then getting surgery for the vocal injury. And part of why I was able to go so long before getting surgery is because my technique was so strong from opera. Mm. Um, So I use a lot, now that my voice has recovered, I still use a lot of kind of the philosophy around classical singing when I'm recording the idea of like, warming up every bit of your voice before you sing anything whether you're going to go to the highest and the lowest notes or not um like really trying to treat my voice carefully as an instrument Mm -hmm. um and also just yeah the technique gives a lot of actual physical strength that allows me to have i think more stamina than i did before i studied opera and and more versatility flexibility I wanted to ask you about your vocal surgery um, because I feel like we're hearing more and more about singers that have been like touring intensely and then end up needing surgery. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like when you kind of came to terms with the fact that you were going to need a surgical intervention, were there times where you worried about how the surgery might change your voice, um, how it might affect you as a musician? And then like, maybe if you can tell us like what that process was like of like rebuilding your singing voice and, and where you are now as a musician, like as a result of that particular experience. Yeah. So I would say I I hear from a couple musicians probably every month who know that I've had vocal surgery and they'll reach out and be like, Hey, do you think I have a vocal injury too? And the answer is honestly, usually yes. I think way more people have vocal injuries than we're aware of but the majority of people are not professional musicians and so if you know someone who has a kind of hoarse voice in general that could probably be like vocal nodules or something like that but it's not affecting their quality of life 
Um, but for me, I, I was hopeful I wouldn't need surgery just because I was worried about complications. So that's why I did so many sessions of speech therapy prior to the surgery. But the improvement was so incremental and it was such incredibly hard work and it was so expensive. Um, yeah. And ultimately, the decision to have surgery was kind of out of my hands because I got such severe vocal nodules that I had a vocal hemorrhage, which can be life-threatening. So yeah. I ended up being pretty much an emergency surgery. Um, and during the recovery process, um, you can't speak for two weeks because they don't put stitches in your vocal cords. They just kind of lay them flat and they're like, okay, have a great Let time. Yeah. So you can't <laughs> talk for two weeks. And I was so, so, so scared about what it would be like. <laughs> okay. I am not the biggest fan of Neil Young ever. I don't know why. Like, I don't hate him, but I just, you know, I'll listen He's to somebody else you. instead. Yeah. And yeah. like the day I came back from surgery, my husband put on a Neil Young record and I like woke up and I was so on drugs and I was like, turn it off. And he was like, you're not supposed to talk. And I was like, <laughs> laying there being like, oh my God, I'm so powerless. Like I can't even stop Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> um, Neil has barged into my home yeah. against my wishes. <laughs> and I had a, like an app where I could type out what I was trying to say and yeah. it would speak it out loud for me. But what I did notice during the recovery process, once I could speak, was that I had a ton of physical atrophy. So that's where the opera training also came in handy because mm -hmm. I my voice was kind of jacked. <laughs> so like I could afford to lose a lot of muscle tone. Um, but it was still, I could still just so vividly remember how scary it felt to start singing for the first time. And the first few gigs I did after the surgery, I would tell the venue, like, I'm going to bring my friend. He's also a great singer songwriter. So I might have to tap out partway through this set. And then my friend is going to hop on stage and finish the set. Um, so that's what I did for the first couple of months after the surgery, which just was really helpful to know, Whoa. okay, you don't have to push through. Yeah, I wish that I had, I think that I wish that we all actually had more people in our lives and opportunities to do that thing of saying up front, like, I have a need. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but I'm going to be really honest about where I'm at. And the minute I can no longer like perform to the best of my ability without harming myself, I'm going to step back. Like I, yeah. there have been so many times where like for mental health or physical health, I've felt like, Ooh, maybe I should cancel this or that, but like felt like I had to push through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I bet that like was a really humbling, but helpful exercise in boundary setting. It really was. And it also just made me think about how much I valued my voice. Cause right before the surgery, I couldn't even speak for 20 minutes a day. And I was bad. so sad all the time because my voice is such a huge part of who I am and always has been. I had to quit my bartending job, which I loved. I had to quit teaching. Um, and it just had impacted my quality of life so much. And the surgery cost all the money that I had, <laughs> even with insurance. And I was like, literally, like what could possibly be worth not protecting my voice? Like $75? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it be quickly became like so clear that I needed support as I was recovering. And I'm just really grateful that I had a bunch of different people who could step up and, and kind of help me complete my sets when I needed mm -hmm. them. Yeah. You needed your community to like, as we all do. 
Um, I want to talk about your your debut album, Breastfed. Um, my first question is, when you started writing the songs for that album, did you have in mind, like, this is going to become a collection of songs that will be my debut album that will introduce me to the world as a singer-songwriter? Or was it more of you had, like, quite a bit of output, um, and then at a certain point you hit that tipping point where you realized, like, oh, this is an album? I think it was kind of a different third thing. <laughs> um, Whoa, love which that. Which is that, like... When it comes, I, I think that I am a pretty good, I, I am fairly confident in myself. I'm a pretty decent scammer when I feel like I don't really know how to do something, except when it comes to recording music. When it's yes. recording music, I get like the worst imposter syndrome. Like when I What do you think my, that's about? I I think it's honestly just that I, like a lack of technical knowledge. If I mm-hmm. was able to like, home record at a standard that I wanted on my like fully on my own I think I'd feel a lot more confident but when I have to mm-hmm. rely on other people it's very vulnerable and yes. even though it's always like paid off really well I mean sometimes it doesn't sometimes it like really messes things up so that's just very yes. vulnerable for me but with the first album I was just starting to write songs and I think it was my husband Jacob's idea he was like you should just start recording these so we kind of did them one at a time and at that point I was honestly just joking I'd tell people I'm working on a solo album and people would be like ha 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 that's so crazy and then at some point someone was like that's amazing that's wonderful I was waiting for you to put out an album and I was like what are you talking about (laughs) wait why would people laugh you're like you're a trained musician and a creative person well I'm defensive for you. I'm defensive for past you. (laughs) I know. I wish I'd had somebody to be like, you're really good at this. Because like the first probably like 50 shows I played, like Mm -hmm. I did not let anyone I knew come. I was like, you know, one day I'm just going to put out a solo album and people are going to be like, oh, she made music. But it was just, it was a really special recording process because Jacob recorded most of it in his band's home studio. And everybody who plays on the songs is, you know, one of my nearest and dearest. So it felt very yeah. much like a family thing. And it also was nice because there wasn't a lot of, I feel like when you decide you're doing a project, there's a little bit of pressure to finish it. And, and yes. there wasn't in this case. So we worked on it for a pretty long time, like two and a half years. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, I... I have grown a lot as a musician since then, but I love listening back to it and being like, oh, I love that girl. She tried super hard. Do you remember like what was the first song you did and what was the last song? Because I want to listen back with that in mind, that time gap. Yeah, yeah. So the last song I did was Phobia Number 9. And that was recorded in a separate studio, actually. And there, something had happened to the building and part of the wall had kind of fallen out and there were birds living in the studio and you can hear them on the track which is kind of cool oh Um, my god that's what's that john moreland album birds in the ceiling oh yeah yeah that is very that yes yeah it was really lucky the guy kept being like i'm so sorry about the birds and i was like this is actually really nice oh it's beautiful (laughs) he mostly records like hardcore bands so i understand that birds are not the typical vibe for him um but that's so beautiful yeah it felt super okay I can't wait to go back special. and listen with that in mind yeah it's it's really cute to hear them the first song that we recorded was bus stop and that's actually the oh, first song wow. that I ever wrote 
in your life yeah yeah kimaya i think our listeners maybe they've probably listened to enough songwriters now talking about their process to be like astonished at that because i feel like for most people i mean and speaking for myself as well like the first hundred songs i wrote were garbage (laughs) or just like little bad like just bad just there was no craft there was no sophistication and bus stop is a really cool song oh thank you you i'm amazed that your first song is like available in the world yeah i i am honestly surprised myself to I think the reason so that song I wrote right before I graduated college like the week before and I had downloaded like a eight track app on my phone and just recorded it so the original drum in the demo is me like hitting the inside of my desk drawer um and it was just super fun to build the the song with kind of the constraints of like eight tracks that's it but also being Mm -hmm. able to layer the harmonies that are such a part of the song and I honestly had with both of my albums, you know, you can't have, no one can have infinite resources besides Beyonce, obviously. And um, it's kind of, I've always kind of enjoyed working within some confines, whether it's the number of tracks that I can do or the like technical expertise that I do not have or the instruments that I can or can't play. It's always been kind of exciting to try to work within that. Um, can you tell me about the cover art for oh, Breastfed? Yeah. That was taken by my friend Ajahn on, and it's, so when I was in ninth grade, during winter break, my best friend, Jill, decided to become a photographer, like everyone does in ninth grade, and she laid out this blue bed sheet, and I was her model, and we took Vaseline, put it all over my entire body, and stuck rose petals to the Vaseline, (laughs) because it was very artsy, and... I kind of wanted to recreate that for the album cover. So the background is the same blue bed sheet 10, 11 years later. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I'm glad I asked you this because I 100% assumed that it was like an homage to, like, have you seen placenta portraits? Yes. Yeah. It looks like. I think I'm on I'm on like doula Instagram oh, more yeah. than I really have any business being, <laughs> but those portraits are always so amazing and it put me in the mind frame to really think about that first album as like your origin story mm-hmm. and a and like a piece of art that was taking all the little pieces of your past and 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 honoring them and lifting them up and spreading them out like a, you know, oh, patches on a quilt. You. Yeah, that's really that's really nice to hear because I was thinking also a lot about like motherhood and daughterhood Mm -hmm. during the time. Um, Like my mom had breast cancer for 12 years, but during her illness, she didn't make that known to anyone. She told like a small handful of people towards the end of her life. But, you know, she was diagnosed when I was 16 years old. And it's really hard to be a teenager and not be able to talk about that kind of thing with anybody. And so all of the songs on Breastfed were kind of processing that in like the most metaphorical way possible. Because I wanted to share the songs with people, but I also wasn't allowed to be like, hi, my mom has cancer. And that is hard for me, too. So having like I love hearing you say it has that sort of placenta imagery and then with the title breastfed it kind of ties in that mother and daughter theme that I was chasing but wasn't allowed to really explicitly um explore well how does that feel talking about it now because I I know that your mom has passed on and I'm 
so sorry about that loss. And it's something that you do talk about in your music. How do you figure out what's yours to share? Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot because literally tonight I am starting a year-long memoir writing program. And I'm so excited about it. I've been writing a lot. The world needs this. I cannot (laughs) wait to read it. Thank you. Yeah, I've been writing like breast cancer mom stories, like short fiction, poems, whatever, for literally 14 years now. And I talked with my mom a lot about this during her life because she was really private, but she also knew that I am somebody who I get a lot out of sharing my personal Mm -hmm. experiences with other people and I really enjoy connecting with people in that way. Um, And so she knew at some point I would be writing about her. And we talked a lot about kind of where her preferred boundaries were with that. And I, I've also, I, we also talked a lot about the idea that, you know, everything that happens to you belongs to you. And that is sort of the place that I'm coming from when I write or speak about her. Um, I'm not sharing, you know, like the details of what I'm guessing she felt like Got um, it. or like gratuitous scenes of illness because the cancer illness is like widely documented right people know Mm -hmm. what that looks and seems like in a lot of ways so the writing and speaking that I do about her are more about my relationship with her and how that changed during her illness and death Um, and of course you know there are plenty of people who get very like graphic and detailed about that, but I just feel like knowing her, I want to keep it respectful. And I also think that there is an inherent value in my own experience oh, yeah. of being the child of somebody who died from cancer. And I think that there is a rich story there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from is everything that yeah. happens to me belongs to me. That's a mantra I want to put up on my fridge. I have to say, I did not come up with it. It's from somebody, but I don't remember who. Okay, well, we'll we'll find out and we'll put it in the show notes. Kidding. Mm-hmm. I plan to do no research on that. <laughs> I am going to like move forward as though you came up with it. Amazing. Love um, it. In an interview with Hooligan Mag, talking about breastfed, you said, going into it, I knew very little about the steps that came after recording. I didn't really know what went into mixing and mastering. I took some missteps during the recording process. There are definitely things I would change next time, knowing what can and cannot be changed or altered in the editing process. That is a really, really interesting comment about like post-production and the technical side of recording. So I'm wondering how you faced those concerns and addressed them when it came time to create this new album, Quincy. Yeah, I would say I came in feeling a lot more equipped, but again, I still did learn a lot of stuff. There were things like very basic things. Can you give an example? Yeah. Yeah. So during recording Breastfed, I really was not a good guitar player and it was really, really hard for me to kind of play in time at the beginning. And so... Jacob that be that like, is really hard. Even so people that are, I mean, yeah. I've, I've seen you play live and I think you're a very good guitar player. And playing in time to a click in the studio is a su- it's it's such so a crazy. skill that's almost divorced from like the reality of playing live. So yeah, I totally get it's that. It's such a different thing. And I, 
I just could not, when I was recording breastfed, I could not possibly like conceive of how having a click like would be helpful down the road beyond just making the actual original recording be in time. Mm -hmm. um, so things like that. So a lot of Quincy was recorded to a click or at least very carefully like monitored throughout to make sure that things were generally staying the same tempo and feel throughout. And that allowed us to make some arrangement edits after everything had already been recorded, which was just fully impossible with breastfed. Mm -hmm. um, and same with like, you know, when I went into breastfed, I was like, is it possible to speed up a song after you've recorded it and have it sound okay? Is that not possible? Is it possible <laughs> to shift things, nudge things? Like I just did, had no idea the possibilities right. that were out there. and. I also didn't know how much the sound could change during mixing. And now, like with Quincy, I was able to be like, okay, we're gonna have a delay on this and it's gonna be later. And my vocals sound very, very raw and exposed right now and I'm not gonna worry about that. Whereas right. with breastfed, I'd be like, oh no, my voice, it's so, it's so exposed. It's so rough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I think that can be hard, especially when you work on something for a long time before it goes into mixing, cause you start your brain fixates on the little things that are imperfect and often those things will get worked out in like two hours yeah. like once oh, yeah. you send it over to a mix engineer like it is a non-problem but you can just I know I've done that ended up focusing on like certain imperfections that mm -hmm. later just are not consequential at all yeah yeah I also was really lucky I got to go and just spend I work remotely, so I brought my computer and just was there the whole time every song was being mixed. And that taught me a lot just watching what was going on. And I'm already excited about the possibilities for the next album because I just know so much more. Oh, yeah. I'm excited, too. Tell me about the release show. You're fresh off your Quincy release show. I'd love to do some post-game post analysis. Yeah. So what was your band for that performance? How did you rehearse the songs to translate the recording into a live performance? And then what did sharing the songs in front of an audience teach you about what it would be like to share these really intimate stories of love and grief? Yeah, so I altered my typical band lineup a little bit because I did want the songs to reflect the recordings a little bit more. Um, typically I play guitar through the whole set and um, that's just how we've been doing the songs since before they were even recorded. So for this show, I had two singers, had bass player, drummer, keyboard player with so many keyboards, like four, <laughs> and a second guitar player um, to take a little bit of the pressure off of me, which was very, very nice. And it was really, it was an interesting process getting the songs to align a little bit more with the recordings because we, we, I mean, there's so much going on in some of the songs that we couldn't even capture every single little detail live. Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of fun chatting with the band and, and figuring out what things they felt really made the song as opposed to what I felt made the song because certain lines will stand out to me that I either, you know, struggled to record or just really loved or whatever um, that stand out to me in ways that they don't stand out to other people. Um, and it was just, a very fun and collaborative process. Everyone in my band, with the exception of one person, I have known for more than half of my life. Like we all wow. went to high school together and been making music with them for a super long time. And so I just, I trust them completely. I really value their opinions. And we all come from pretty different 
musical backgrounds. And so I just, I feel like the live show really reflected everybody. I was also nervous. It was a sold out show and then the venue decided to, I all my life have done seated shows, like many singer songwriters, because mm-hmm. people are not going to be like dancing to a little folk song situation necessarily. That is not always true. Okay, I'm glad to hear that because I was so yeah. nervous. The venue was like, we're going to do a standing room show because we want to sell more tickets. And I was like, great. So we oh had my like, God, how did it feel? It was so good. There were 300 people there. Like Look at you. from every part of my life, which was amazing. Like the old woman who taught me how to sew in community theater was there, which I was nervous about because I did some self-modifications to my dress and I was like, please don't look at them. <laughs> <laughs> but it was super, super fun. It was just really exciting to be there with my community and mm-hmm. celebrate the new songs and show off my band. And people had a really good time and I had a great time. When it comes to Quincy, it feels like a huge departure from your first album. You know, as a listener, I felt like the arrangements were really different and like a little experimental. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of the character of your vocal performances was was broadened, I felt. Like I felt like there were more different types of performance on the album. Um, and I want to know how much of that is planned out in advance. Um, and how much of it kind of just happens as you're collaborating in the studio? Like, did you kind of have an idea? This is what I want this album to sound like. I want it to have notes of R&B. I want it to have notes of folk, all of these different genres. Or do you kind of start out demoing to acoustic guitar and then let the process change the song? Um, I think it's more like the first thing. I, I made this Quincy inspiration playlist that I've been updating as I was recording. And there were a lot of sounds and songs that I just kept returning to that I was mm-hmm. very, very inspired by. The first song that got me like thinking about the record sounding this way was Tenderness by Jay Som. And then the second one was Gills and Tales by Amal Laria. And both of those songs like have so much... The second one has a lot of layered vocals, and so I did meticulously plan out pretty much all of the vocals throughout every single track ahead of time because I really wanted to take my time and do more elaborate vocal parts than Mm -hmm. I could necessarily improv on the spot in the studio. So I did really have this vision that I was holding to. Um, And I also knew that there was a sort of like question mark element in that everyone I worked with in the studio is like to the core indie rock. And that is like not a world that I, that was like part of my upbringing. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of that now in my house, but like, I just, Mm -hmm. I just knew like there's something about like Japanese breakfast or like Wilco or like Hush Puppy or somebody like like mm-hmm. a, like that who like the music is resonating with me but I can't really like break it down into its elements and figure out how to pull those elements into my songs mm. and so I kind of just had an open door to Jacob and my brother-in-law Caleb who co-produced the record with me being like bring these sounds in if you see a spot for them and that's how you end up with a song like I have to try which yes. is like not new wavy (laughs) yeah I was like what where did this come from and I I really love it and I also love that it meshed with these more 
soul style vocals that I had already planned out. That is a really cool meshing of neuroses, as my mom would say, like with, with people, people coming in with like very different genre influences can often lead to headbutts. And I've, I've been there in the studio where like taste level for an indie rock song can compete with the taste for like a soul song or a folk song. And like the best thing in one genre can really actually be the opposite of the best thing in another genre. It's so, true. so it's cool that it, that it, that the compromises worked out it, yeah. I, and you really do feel, you feel that conversation on this whole album. Thank you so much. I'm so glad it comes through. Oh yeah. Um, I'd love to know more about the real Quincy. Yeah, he was a special guy. Yeah, what what parts of this album bear his paw print? Yeah, so Quincy, for those of you who don't know, he was my last dog. He was a retired racing greyhound who came to us 45 days off the track, 30 pounds underweight. Like, we thought we were getting a mid-sized 40-pound dog, and the vet was like, oh, he should be, like, 75 pounds. And he also came to us with a lot of health issues that caused him a lot of pain. And he also came with a lot of trauma. Like we couldn't make physical Mm -hmm. contact with him for several months. Um, And he was super, super challenging and super special. was with us through my mom's death and the beginning Mm -hmm. of COVID and all these different events. Um, And then he died right before we'd had him for two years. Oh, my gosh. we did not name him Quincy after Quincy Jones. We named him Quincy because it had a Q like his race name, which was Quellick, which... Quellick? See, okay, a lot of the racing Wait, dogs... Wait, and it's Quincy Jones's birthday. Happy birthday, oh, Quincy. happy birthday. Yeah, a lot of the race dogs have weird names like like race horses do, but Quellick, it's not like terrible, but every, sing- every single person had the exact same reaction as you. Like, Quellick? What is that? So we named him Why? Quincy. <laughs> and then he ended up spending like every single day in the studio with us. So we called him Quincy Bones. And he was like leaning on my legs every single time I was tracking vocals. Um, he loved all, any instrument that did high notes, like the glockenspiel or the piano, and he'd perk up his ears. My dog loves the harp. When I play harp, he comes over to, to be near it. I think they That's like so that special. high, twinkly stuff. Yeah, they like it. I love that. Yeah, and he, he, we also had to cut several vocal takes because he would start singing. He was like a truly <gasps> stunning singer. And if you listen to the album on Bandcamp, there is a bonus track that's him singing to wake me up. So he was just, he was a very special dog and having him taught me a lot of things that did translate into the recording process, which is just, you know, we wanted to get a dog for the same reason why everyone wants to get a dog, which is like a fun, cute buddy that you can cuddle with and that will like lick your tears up and like be cute and fun. And he was truly none of those things. (laughs) Somebody's like cuddling a greyhound is like, laying down with a golf bag which is so incredibly accurate but just he taught a lot of lessons to me in terms of taking like accepting a person or a creature or a situation for exactly what it is and fully relinquishing expectations and desires around that creature and learning to love something or somebody or a situation for exactly what it has to offer you that's unique. Oh gosh. Yeah. I want our <laughs> listeners to pause here and listen to your song, is it called Letting Go? Yes. On on this new album because 
that story is so that song and I it's it might be my favorite song on the album because it's so bittersweet and knowing more about the people and beings in your life that inspired it like I'm I'm close to tears that's such a beautiful story thank you yeah I I just I don't know if we could have had him for longer because his physical issues were really severe and led to a lot of really kind of dangerous behavioral issues but I am like so grateful for the amount of time that we had and the experience that we had together. Yeah, would you be willing to share about your time as a hospice volunteer? Did that come into play as you were working on on this album? Yeah, I would say it did. So when I was volunteering in hospice, I would I would show up at people's homes with my guitar and typically be playing like old jazz standards because that mm-hmm. was the the age of most of the people that I was visiting. And most people I would see maybe two or three times before they died. Um, but the last family I was seeing, um, I was with for 14 months, every wow. single week for 14 months. And she died maybe in January 2020. And so I had developed a close relationship with that family. Um, and also, they just had such strong associations with certain songs. They had like a neighborhood song. Like their neighborhood was a lot of people who had come back from the war, all bought houses, all had kids at the same time. The radio would play this song when your old wedding ring was new. And it was like the oh. neighborhood song. And then um, somebody in the family also really loved the song Stardust, like the mm-hmm. Nat King Cole version. I learned yeah. that for them. And it just made me think about the songs that I have such a strong association with, mm-hmm. um, like Like a Star by Corinne Bailey Ray is like one that really comes up for me as when, like when I'm 90 years old, someone come play that by my bedside and I will be so happy. Um, I love Corinne Bailey Ray. I will be there if I'm still alive. If I keep eating broccoli and I make it <laughs> to that age, I will be there at your Amazing. bedside. Thank you. Ah, I wish she would tour in the U.S. And then I wish also that I would open for her on her tour. But let's get word to her, Corinne yes. Bailey Ray. I didn't. I don't know if it's if she goes by Corinne or Corinne Bailey. I so guess let's I'll cover have to both. find out. <laughs> Corinne and Corinne Bailey, if I may. <laughs> I'd like to submit the perfect opening act and friend for you. Thank you. Um, yeah. I heard in another interview that there's a part of you that feels like you should pick a lane musically. Like, what if I just focused in on musical theater? What if I just focused in on folk? What if, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Where are you at with that question, like, upon the release of this album with songs that are so different? Like, I have to try and then, you know, letting go. I mean, there's just... There's there's so many songs that are like that show your different influences. Yeah, I'm still kind of struggling with that right now because as I was putting out the album and like looking for more support to help release it, whether it's like label or publicity, a lot of those groups are more genre focused. And so I did hear back from several people just saying like, oh, I really like this music. This is too broad for what we usually find coverage for or something like that. And so I've just been kind of thinking like, okay, who does write about this kind of music? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that you know, having someone help me with publicity is worth 
narrowing the genre that I play within. And I'm finding myself very inspired by like more genre fluid artists like Yola or somebody like Mm -hmm. that who kind of are just playing the songs that sound incredible. Um, Yes. So I don't, I don't think I want to narrow what I'm doing, but I still am kind of struggling to figure out how to fit kind of in the traditional elements of the music industry while also doing my own thing. Yeah, I think I think that's such a challenge and I can so relate to it, especially when it comes to, like you said, labels, like pitching your stuff behind the scenes to labels, getting someone to be like, I get the vision. Mm-hmm. And then also like when it comes to radio, like nobody cares about your inner journey. Yeah. <laughs> they want to know which stations you want it marketed to, like which mm-hmm. markets, you know, it's like it's very... Um, it's sort of cut and dry, yeah. even though it's very subjective. So you you end up having to take, you know, all of these fluid influences and then just like narrowing them down and picking a few words and running with that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's tricky. And it's been interesting as some people have been writing about the album, like seeing the words that they use to describe, because I've always kind of called my music like folky soul. But yes. I... Like, that's my own self-description, but somebody was like, this is an amazing pop album. And I'm like, what are you? Oh, okay, sure. (laughs) It's an interesting. Okay, sure. I have one more of the deeper questions, and then I would love to engage you in a lighthearted lightning round. Yes. Um, So you collaborate a lot with your husband, both in the writing process and performing. Mm -hmm. So do you guys ever struggle to separate work and life? Do you have any best practices for keeping your creative partnership healthy while you're also keeping your marriage healthy? Yeah. So I would say that was definitely tricky in the earlier days. He is an incredibly prolific and very skilled songwriter. If you were Mm -hmm. like, Jacob, end of the month, I need 30 songs that you would feel good about performing on stage. He'll be like gotcha see you at the end of the month like it's and ridiculous. true eyes I, true eyes was one of his correct yes. i love that song yeah that's oh, a beautiful that's too. a gorgeous song he is such an amazing writer and so fast and then i am like holed up in my little cavern for like three months being like i wrote one verse <laughs> <laughs> so early on he's like let's write songs together and that was like a very dissonant process and so i was <laughs> like you know what if we just like do not write songs together i think will probably be good. And that was that really made all yeah. the difference as far as like a boundary. And sometimes he'll like gift me some chord changes and then like leave me on my own and I'll just work on something and that's been really good. If someone out there would like to not get married to me and give me chord changes because I'm all set on <laughs> on the person, but if if someone would like to gift me some chord changes, just freelance as a friend, you can email me. Yeah. Oh, do it. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So that's been like a good boundary that's like helps helped making music together feel easier. And like really just trying to like co-write in real time was the worst for me. What do you think specifically was so stressful about co-writing in real time? I think for me, like because I've written way fewer songs than he has, every song I write is a little precious gem to me. And (laughs) for him, he's like, how can we just make this hookier? And sometimes that means like cutting the precious line or like not taking the like jazzier route with the melody or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he is super good at making songs that are so catchy and so solid. And like that is just a different goal for me, goal than what Mm -hmm. I have. 
Uh, yeah, and that's it's cool that you have both of those approaches present um, in the same household and sometimes in the same studio. That's probably a healthy tension, but like really hard to co-write a song with both yeah. of those approaches in the same room. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And also like a couple members of my band are members of his band also. And so it just, you know, it continues. <laughs> um, and I like It's a family affair. It really is. It really is. Kimaya, what where do you see yourself in 20 years if all goes well? What does success look like in 20 years? Okay, I have three more albums. Boom. Uh I know maybe it's like a passe thing to wish for now, but I would love to have Pitchfork write a review of my album. Um, Not passe. (laughs) Within reach. Thank you. I would love to have my memoir published. Yes. And I would love to do a national tour. Yes. Where I don't have to drive the vehicle because I hate driving. That part. Yeah, that's that's tricky. That's a tricky part. Yeah, I would love to still be making music. And my day job, I'm a speechwriter, and I kind of have this like daydream of having like a third career in 20 years where I become like like a like a couples counselor or something like that or something yes. with elderly people. Like I really care about elderly people and like communicating with the elderly or like developing some sort of program or something to help people connect with the elderly people in their lives. Something like that. I'm still working on it. I cannot wait to see how all of these dreams come true in one way or another. Thank you. Okay, everybody go out and purchase Quincy, which is Kimaya Diggs' new album. Get it on Bandcamp. Get it where you stream music. It's really beautiful. Um, And now, the Kimaya Diggs lightning round. Yes. Are you ready? I am. What is the best age to be? 29. <laughs> what is the best time of day to write a song? The nighttime. Who is one poet you think every basic folk listener should read at least once? Emily Dickinson. What is the your favorite memoir you've ever read? Hmm. Crying in H Mart. What is the last movie you saw and loved? Knives Out 2. What is an album? Thanks for the hand signal. What is an album that always cheers you up on a hard day? Ooh, I would say Joao Gilberto and um, Ellis Regina duo duo album. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your favorite comfort food? Soup. What is your favorite holiday? Valentine's Day. What is one instrument we will never hear on a Kimaya Diggs record? Mm. Wow, that's a crazy question. I'm not very lightning for this one. Wow. That's Probably why. like a bassoon. Okay, or a that's not you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, what is one song you wish you had written? Oh, I wish I'd written Like a Star. I feel like I've talked about it five yeah. times. I just, what a great song. What a gem. Um, Kimaya, Corinne, Bailey, Diggs, Ray. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for being a guest on Basic Folk. Thank you for having Um, me. I'm really excited for everyone to listen to your new album. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I'm so glad that I got to be on this podcast. You're the best. You're the best. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. 
You can find all the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app, on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. And here's the thing. If you have a friend that you think would like this episode of Basic Folk, please share it with them. All right. You're so great. Thank you. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.